That psalm has many vivid displays of a call for the Lord, of a searching for him and searching for his mercy. We sang that psalm as we turn our attention to the lesson of Lord's Day 4. And the question that overrides Lord's Day 4, what about God's mercy? What about God's mercy? And we'll see that today and answer that question as we turn first to Exodus 34. Just two verses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We went through this text in depth when we were in our series in Exodus, but we will read it again as it sets before us one of the most fulsome expressions in Scripture of the character and nature of the Lord. And we will also turn to Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4 can be found on page 204 in your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read God's Word, let's ask for His blessing. Lord God, as we have just sung through your word and in this psalm, uh, a call for mercy, that you would hear the prayers of those who don't deserve it. And yet we come as, as those distinct, as those who are your people. And so we don't come with hopelessness, but we do come with that same call. Lord, what about your mercy in light of justice? What about your grace in light of a law that condemns? And we pray that what we would see today would be a full expression of who you are, both your justice and your mercy, your love displayed in both these categories of a God who is so beautiful that he will not compromise the standard of righteousness, and a God so beautiful that in upholding this standard is still the one to maintain mercy and grace. We ask that we would be struck anew by this beauty we see in you and in the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's our text from Exodus 34 as we read of God's nature. And now we turn to Lord's Day 4. Question and answer 9. I will read the questions if we could all read the answer. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, 
Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. People of God, we come to this Lord's Day, and this Lord's Day, as I already said, that really is asking the question, well, what about God's mercy? What about mercy, or is it just justice? And in fact, as we look into the justice of God, is it true justice? Is there something out of place in what we see in God's requirement? Is there something wrong there? And what comes to mind, I am, and believe me, I'm not saying this is what the catechism had in mind, the writers of the catechism, but what comes to my mind when I always read this Lord's Day is sort of like a judgment scene, as if the prior Lord's Days have condemned the, the, the man. Mankind has condemned us. And here is that final words as, as he's laying over the executioner's block. He's given his last chance. He's giving his last plea to, to say something, to make his last stand, and to make his last request. And it's like here, this is the, the last Lord's Day in the misery section of the Heidelberg Catechism. Here is his, the miserable man's last chance, his last word. And so he asks the first question of this Lord's Day, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? You're about to condemn me, this, this man says. The judge is passing his judgment, but, but is this true justice? Is this true righteousness to put me to the, the executioner's block, to the executioner's acts, when I couldn't fulfill it? Is that just? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to understand God himself. You see, understanding gospel, how we understand the gospel, is answered in how we understand God himself, in how we understand the judge, in how we understand who we're answerable to, in how we understand the very fountainhead of the law. What what do I mean by fountainhead of the law? The, The law that condemns is a display of the righteousness of God. It's a display of his own nature and character, what is right and good. That's the standard, and and we find ourselves judged against that. So to understand the gospel, we have to understand what this Lord requires, what is obedience, and is his justice too much and not truly just. See, Lord's Day 4 in this Catechism is answering the perceived questions from the prior Lord's days. We've gone through it. It dealt with these other things, that we can't save ourselves, that we're miserable, that we're sinful, we're totally unable to keep the law. Well, if we're totally unable to keep the law, well, then wouldn't it be a good defense for this condemned man to say, well, how can I be condemned when I'm not able? And what we see is that God's justice is maintained in the standard of his righteousness. God's justice is seen in maintaining his righteous standard. That's our first point. His justice is right, and he is right to do this. Question answer nine is one you can hear on the lips of many today. Many would make this same bold question. 
But doesn't God do man this injustice? I've heard many illustrations of this to just try to bring to the surface, pull out just how unjust this must be. Would, would you as parents require your, your one-year-old to clean your car? Would you expect that of him? Would you ask a homeless man to give you a million dollars? Would you demand of a mere human the, the obedience to fly to the moon without any aid? Well, no, of course not. You see, we would say that's cruel. We would say that's unjust. You're demanding what they're unable to give. And there's so many illustrations like it. And if we're not perceptive or careful enough, we might start thinking there's something to what they're saying. There's some truth to it. How can man be condemned when he can't fulfill the only way of salvation? He can't fulfill the law. Well, the catechism's answer sorts it out. God created man with the ability to keep the law. You see, this truth cuts through it and changes everything. Because God created man with the ability to keep the law, that changes, that changes the very nature of those illustrations I gave. You see, in those illustrations that people will bring, would you demand your one-year-old to do this? Would you ask this of a homeless man? Would you ask something that a man can't do? Well, that man never had that capacity. That child is not able and never was able to do these things. But man, on the other hand, was. He was able. We were talking about this earlier today in Catechism, and I gave this illustration. I'm going to give it again this evening. Imagine, if you would, a father... A father tells his son, or his sons, doesn't matter, it could be, it could be a whole lot of them, and, and tells them, if you go outside, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you chainsaws, I'm going to give you sledgehammers and wedges and axes and all these things, and I want you to go out and cut all the wood and stack it for, for the fire. And if you do that, if you clear the property and do that, we'll have a good dinner tonight. We're going to have a feast even. You can think, I don't know, we'll have, we'll have ribs or we'll have steak or... I have been chastised by the hunters here. I think it's backstrap. Is that the, the correct? Oh, yeah, everyone's now going, yeah, that's it, right there. Okay, whatever it is, this feast is promised. Now suppose the father who equipped these sons that way, now suppose these sons go outside to ju- do just that. But the neighbor boy sort of slithers up Slithering there should draw attention to something else in this illustration. He, he slithers up and said, Did your dad really say that the only way you'll get this dinner is if you cut the wood and do this work? That's not true. He'll give it to you anyways. What you really need to do is not do this work, throw away these tools, break them and get rid of them, and then you'll have the feast anyways. And so then these sons think, That's a good idea. So they break all the tools, they throw away all the chainsaws, they have no capacity anymore to split this wood, to cut this wood, they can't clear the property, they're unable. Now would we really expect the father in light of this gross disobedience and rebellion to him, would we really expect him to serve up such a dinner and such a feast to them? You see, that actually, we could say, would be unjust, wouldn't it? When there was a requirement, and a good requirement, a righteous requirement. And they disobeyed, and they didn't keep it. 
That's our situation. That's our situation. We were able to do these things. Now, the next question you can hear coming would be, but how can we be held responsible for Adam's sin? You know, someone would say, I I have a loophole in that illustration that you made. And they respond, in your illustration, say, I was a son who wasn't there. The other ones did that, not me. And this is where we would have to say, well, yes, illustrations do break down. And we're only illustrating that one point. And yet the truth is still that we are right, we are judged righteously by God that we have broken the law because Adam was that representative. Adam was that federal head. I want to look at that a little bit. We, we answered that in brief, briefly last time in Lord's Day 3. I want to talk about that a little bit more. When we think that well, we're being held responsible for what someone else did, we're not understanding our very nature. We're not understanding the covenant. You see, it's not unfair because this is the operation of federal headship. It's also the operation of family and organic descent. Here's what I mean by that. When we try to say that it wasn't our fault, it was Adam's fault, what we're failing to realize is he was our father. And we come from him. You see, it sounds nice and tidy to be able to set yourself apart from your parents and to to conceive of yourself as if you exist apart from their contribution, as if you could exist, as if you could stand on the outside and say, see, it was Adam that did it. The problem is we arise from Adam. We descend from him. And we can't blame him. We can't blame him that he ruined it for us when we wouldn't even exist without him and the descent of mankind. You see, this is why God is not just. We wouldn't unjust. We wouldn't count it as unjust if Adam kept this covenant. If he fulfilled it and we were here in heaven at this moment just reaping the benefits of what our federal head did, no one would cry and say, that's not right. Because we don't like what happened, that we think it is unjust, but it's not. And like we said in last time, if we don't have Adam as our federal head, you can't have Christ as your representative, because it's the same thing. And so God, again, is proven just. He is not unjust. Romans 5, 12, 18, and 19 explain this. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is not unjust. It's the just and right operations of a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship that had the potential to bring us all into great eternal bliss when we would have done nothing and had to, have do, have, had to do nothing. And in Christ, we receive that yet again. For in faith and in what he's done, then we are saved. But how does this paint God in a beautiful way? And I'm going to ask that of each of these points. How does what we're talking about right now paint God in a beautiful light? 
Because though we might not realize that there's a beautiful picture of God in this Lord's day, may not be one that we, we like in a sinful state, but it's truly beautiful. This is beautiful and paints a, a beautiful picture of God because we see that he didn't do anything nefarious. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything underhanded. He didn't place us in a position to fail. Genesis presents a beautiful picture of God. What did he do? Well, he created Adam and gave him authority and a mandate. He told him clearly what he ought to do. He set him up for success. He provided with him his perfect help meet. He warned him exactly of what he must not do and exactly what he must do. Then he placed him in a garden of perfection. He granted him everything there to eat, but gave that one stipulation, gave that one, that one test. And then God promised that there would be life for success, there would be punishment for disobedience. And so is it a test? Yes, but a test isn't wrong, especially when the teacher gives you the, the answer key beforehand. And don't you love when that happens? Oh, oh, it was the best in school and when you needed to study for an exam and the teacher said, you'd ask the teacher, what's going to be on the exam? And oh, I, I hated it when the professor was like, you should know this. You've been in my class. And that's where you're like, I'm not going to do well in this exam. And then when a teacher would say, well, here, I have a study guide prepared for you. All the questions will be from this study guide. That's a great teacher. It's not, it's not an underhanded test. He gave us exactly what he was telling he was doing. He didn't, he didn't, come, he didn't blindside man. It's a beautiful picture of God because he set him up and created man righteous and good. That he could succeed. And the blame falls on man. So this is a beautiful picture of God because he is righteous. He didn't do anything wrong. Secondly, our, our point this evening is God's justice is in thorough wrath. I, we could call this a thorough Sunday. This morning I used that as a word of application and I'm going to use it here in a different way. This morning we talked about how thorough is our redemption. Well, what here I want to talk about is how thorough God's justice is. And how that in and of itself is beautiful. The definition of thorough means complete with regard to every detail, not superficial or partial. That's God's justice. Complete with every detail, not superficial, not partial. Pure justice. And why does this matter? Because question and answer 10 gets at many things, again, we might claim today, that unbelievers might claim. That God will eventually save all, some might say. Won't he eventually save all? That God doesn't need to punish all. Why would he have to? Doesn't love win? That God could just turn a blind eye to sin because his love is greater than his justice. You hear that, right? I'm sure we've all heard that. That God's love is, is greater than his justice, as if the two are pitted against each other. As if upholding a righteous, just standard is unloving. That, that doesn't make any sense our warped understandings of perhaps what love should look like make us think that God is warped in this way, but that's not the case. The justice or wrath of God is one of the most ridiculed and disliked doctrines there is. In fact, one theologian says this. It's a a scathing rebuke of God. Let me say at the outset that I consider the doctrine of hell as endless torture in body and and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which, which needs to be changed. 
How can Christians project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Scathing rebuke. Scathing rebuke of the one who is just. Of the one who is loving but doesn't compromise that love. You see, the, the foolishness of that statement was actually bold. It was in what he said. This theologian said that for this cruelty and vin- cruel and vindictive God to do such a thing like everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. That's like saying, however bad, I don't care what they did. I don't care what they did. How is that a representation of justice? You see, the problem is, he has a very low view of sin. Very slight. Doesn't understand how wicked it is. Doesn't understand what true justice is. To say such a thing, I don't care what they did. Whatever happened, however bad they were, well, that would be good. Would we not like our civil magistrates to say that? I, I don't care what this man did on the stand. The just punishment is too much. This quote from this theologian reveals that our problem with God's wrath and justice isn't a problem actually with God himself, but the understanding of sin and how slight it is. To just show how horrible the sin was, you have to just look at how potent the cleaner needed to be. You can't always tell how bad a stain is until you start trying to clean it. And you grab your rag and you dip it in water and you start rubbing and it doesn't work. And then you grab the other cleaner and you try that and it doesn't work. And you have to keep going to more and more potent cleaners till finally the stain is removed. And you see, that stain was, was horrific. It took this cleaning solution, it took this thing to actually remove it. Well, what took away man's sin is the blood of God himself. The blood of man, the blood of God, the blood of Christ shows you how bad the stain of sin is and how just God is to not just push that away. That would go against his very nature. What kind of judge is it to dispense with the law? Here's the punishment for this sin. And then to say, you know what? Forget it. That isn't just. The justice of God is a fundamental truth, and the world can't help but operate according to that. Societies have to punish sins. Societies across the world punish murder and theft and rape. They punish these things because not just they, they need the society to function, they punish these things because they understand that there is a right and a wrong. There is a moral standard in the world, and that moral standard is found in God himself. That's where it comes from, and without that moral standard, all morality falls apart. Without the divine being, without God himself, we have no right and wrong. We have no capacity to judge, and we would also have no reason to do good, nor would we know what good is. When you tamper with the standard of justice, you've obliterated the standard of morality. This is why a God who is thoroughly just is a beautiful picture Morality itself depends on it, and people understand it. People try to speak of it. They speak of it incorrectly and ignorantly. 
You know, they talk of karma. We have sayings, you know, that, that they'll get what's coming to them. It all works out in the end. Poetic justice. We have these say, sayings to basically describe what we're talking about, that justice will reign and rule. That's only actually true in God himself. The anger of God here and his wrath isn't like our anger and wrath, our emotional responses. The anger of God here is quite beautiful. Beautiful anger. Beautiful anger. What do we mean? Well, righteous anger is nothing but love set on fire. Righteous anger is nothing but love set on fire. And we actually understand this. I'll give an illustration to, for us to see how we actually see in a righteous anger beauty. Stories play off this all the time. When the, the, the good person, when the, the main character of the story stands up, when he sees the, the enemy, an enemy abusing others, bullying others, doing what shouldn't be done, and then the main character stands up in righteous indignation, stands up and is it can't even fathom how this would happen, and he puts an end to it. He confronts him. He stands up. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Stories do that in different ways all the time, and what it is, it's a beautiful anger. It's a beautiful, righteous anger. Because it's one that's done to protect and defend what is good and right and put what's wrong to justice. Would we rather have any other God than that? That's why this picture of God is one of beauty. He's thorough in his justice and clean up. He cleans it all up. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to attack. But then third, we come to our last question and answer, and we see God's mercy is in harmony with his justice. God's mercy doesn't erase his justice and its demands, but we have that question we began with, but isn't God also merciful? Now here's the rebellious man. His charges have been answered. Here he is at the executioner's block. He's brought his last defense, but it's been shot down. And now there's one plea. Mercy, my Lord, aren't you merciful? And that's this. What about the mercy of the Lord? That's all this make-believe witness, this make-believe man can ask. But at the end of the day, when that axe would fall upon this man, it's not unjust. It's even-handed, it's equal, it's good, it's non-discriminatory, it's non-partisan, it's pure. It's right. And yet, we still have before us what Exodus 34 says. And what the Catechism says as well, God is just. His justice demands that the sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. God has warned what happens to sinners. God declares in the gospel the way to experience union with him. But so far, all we've been talking about is God's justice. He's just, just, just. And there does need to be an answer there. I want to read Exodus 34, 6 and 7 again. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. We've seen one side to that text. We've seen his justice. 
This text would leave us in a bit of a hard place. It's easy to see how we would experience God's justice. It's easy to see how we would experience his wrath. But how can we experience his mercy? If it weren't for Christ, we would not. We would not know it. We would not see how merciful our God actually is. We wouldn't see that just as he is thoroughly and completely just, he is also merciful. He's also faithful to his people and steadfastly loving. And that is played out by the very nature of our Lord, who would not condemn all people to death, but would save a people that he chose for himself. Now you start seeing his mercy. Now you start seeing this beautiful portrait of God because he is the perfect being. He is the perfect being who is just and merciful and that's in harmony with each other. It would be discord if it weren't for the fact that we have Christ. And in Christ then you see that there is mercy and there is justice and in that person you see them come together like we couldn't see anywhere else. When we finish here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing a song about what God did to Christ, his own son, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And in God himself, here you see a standard of justice that is in compromise, that is kept fully, all the cleanup is there, and you also see all the mercy that could be there present because that axe falls. Justice is kept, and yet for God's people, he's the one who bears it. And there's the mercy. You see, understanding our God, his nature, his attributes, his very character helps us to understand the gospel. It helps us to understand that there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do to appease him, and there's nothing that we can do to escape his wrath unless we fall fully upon his mercy in Christ. And there we see it perfectly displayed the final and most important theme of this message is that Christ is the answer to how merciful a character God has and how it can be revealed even when upholding unyielding justice. A beautiful justice, a beautiful wrath. And it is a beautiful wrath because it is right. And yet the mercy is there to show its beauty as well as that wrath falls upon God's own head. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 might be hard for us to wrap our heads around were it, were it not for Christ himself. That's why we turn to him, and that's where the catechism now turns into the section of deliverance, into the section of salvation. The story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with man's misery. It ends with the gospel in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we see your character displayed in the gospel itself, and we praise you for the beautiful picture of a just upholding of righteousness and upholding of the law that won't compromise. And we would actually have it no other way. We see that not only could you not compromise your very self, your very, very righteousness, but we see if you were to, if you could, everything would fall apart regardless 
We would no longer have a just judge. We would no longer have a full sanctification in Christ himself. It would all be undone for what is a mediator of a wrath that wouldn't fall. What is mercy if there were no justice? What is love if there wasn't a a law to bear the weight of, to show us that love? And we praise you for that truth. We praise you for your dear Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.